This is Edge Cases. I'm Andrew Pontius. And I'm Will French. And our topic this week is Unicode. Oh, one of my favorite, favorite <laughs> topics. I mean, I actually seriously mean that. That came off sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could tell that you meant it seriously. I actually have my own misgivings about this topic. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm both interested in it and, you know, kind of, wait, really? I'm going to talk about encodings <laughs> for 45 minutes? Really? <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but first, you have some follow-up? Yeah, yeah we're going to some backup follow-up. So I realized that this is a good thing that we talked about backup in an episode, um, not only because it destroyed your system, which that's a bonus <laughs> points, but also that um, it's one of those things like, it's, just, it's very fractal, it's seemingly endless, all the permutations and all the problems, which is actually one of the problems of backups that is is uh, quite complicated. Um, but it's I could never find like the emotional strength to write about all this like in a blog. So being able to like quickly address things in a podcast is almost optimal for talking about backups. So uh, a couple a couple of uh, readers, uh, more than a couple of readers, but I guess listeners uh, wrote in with some feedback, and I want to address two of them. Uh, Nicholas Riley wrote in with <laughs> very long email, Nicholas, <laughs> and uh, we've warned you about this, Nicholas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would like to say that if you're going to write us a really long email, you're only writing it to two people. Put in a blog posting so that way everyone can read it because it's the it tends to be like the feedback we get is really good. It's one thing if it's like you know a sentence or two, but if it's long, it really needs to be shared with the world and not just us. And you know sometimes we just, it doesn't fit in the schedule where we or the format of where we're trying to get in. And then we sit down forever and then we feel badly. And so it's like yeah, well, put in a blog posting. It's, it's maybe you feel badly. <laughs> that's right, because you're you don't have that emotion chip. <laughs> uh, I think that's a Dan, our first Dan Benjaminism. <laughs> uh, anyway, so to Nicholas Riley, uh, a few points here. I won't list all of them because, like I said, it's a big freaking email. But um, uh, number one, that I don't know if it was a. And clear uh, from the top when we covered it, I guess when I copy, covered it, I even forget what episode it is. But uh, you can use a Mac with file sharing and use it like a time capsule. So you don't need to actually buy a time capsule. So you got a spare Mac around. You can turn on file sharing. I don't think you need OS X server for that. I think personal file sharing will do it. Although, don't quote me on that. Although, I guess being recorded saying that, so now, now it's on the record. Um, <laughs> I, I tell myself I can't quote myself. Wow. Um, he also mentions that the Time Machine UI isn't great, which, uh, I mean, it's, I, I, this is, I kind of, in, I kind of, this is going to date me, but I, I kind of buy into, to a very, very limited extent, the forestall-ism cinematic user experience type stuff, where I think the Time Machine UI, while it's very limited, it is, uh, it's very inviting and kind of, I mean, backup itself is such a terrible topic that I'm. I anything that gets more people interested in using it uh, is a, really a net plus for me. But he also mentioned something that I've actually I forgotten myself that is that when Time Machine not only do you get like Time Machine the Finder where you can go back and look at your files that existed a month ago, um, you can also it also uh, supports inside applications themselves. Yep. I, you know, I totally forgot. I remember when they rolled this out. I seem to remember, like, initially the APIs were private, and then, like, I think then we third-party applications could could have their own. I, this is all very foggy to me because it was. I don't think it's very widely uh, adopted. Yeah, no, and I don't think even so. and Nicholas seemed to mention that even Apple software has been like uh, not been using it as much anymore. So maybe it's kind of AppleScripty or something that it's this weird feature yes. that's 
pretty cool, but it doesn't get wide adoption. So it's kind of in the in the corner there, sulking. Um, another point we mentioned Super Duper a lot of the episode. Apparently, Super Duper has explicit time machine support for cloning a time machine volume. Uh, so that's pretty good. But of course, like everything with time machine and dealing with huge drives like that, it's very slow to do that. I mean, really, it's almost is. Almost worst case scenario in terms of like cloning a time machine drive with all those crazy hard links. And as we mentioned before, it's just kind of bolted on HFS Plus, really kind of bad architecture. And so it's amazing it works at all. But um, so it looks like time wise, if you're cloning a, I, I can't really do incremental copy, which is really what super, where super duper, super duper shines. So uh, if you want to clone a t- time machine volume, uh, I would first recommend you SuperDuper, and this is a general case, and specifically in this case. But I would say if you're a crazy person and you maybe want to use my software, that I forget what I call it, Clone Drive, that's it. I can't remember the name of my own software. Uh, that does the block copy, and you can use the DD if you're crazy. Um, so finally, uh, well, not finally, but uh, he, Nicholas also was kind of dismayed that we kind of ragged on Crash Plan. He thinks it's pretty good, except for it tends to use a good amount of memory. Uh, he says once he gets a greater than 8-gig machine that he plans to use it all the time. And he didn't have a, a interesting two interesting technical points about Crash Plan that I had not known. That uh, Number one, that he says Crash Plan uses a real backup format as opposed to HFS plus hard links. And um, it's interesting that he thinks that uh, the Time Machine uh, backup format is not a, a real backup format, which is... You know, I can totally see the argument there, especially the way HFS hard links were kind of bolted onto HFS Plus. Um, and he mentions that once in a while there is a cleanup pass, but not the lengthy cleanup for every single backup the Time Machine does. And I think we've all seen this. We've used Time Machine. It's like you plug in your drive and it says, oh, I, you know, I have 500 megs I need to copy here. But then it spends the next three hours cleaning up an old backup because it has to walk every single inode and reap them all. And it takes a heck of a long time. And if you have a quote-unquote real backup format, which is basically this kind of a single file type thing that gets tacked on to the end, uh, that type of overhead doesn't exist. So, um, And his, his final point was uh, that CrashPlan backs up partial file changes, which is actually a pretty big deal if you have virtual machine images uh, that Time Machine just copies the entire thing over, and we've mentioned in the episode um, that if you have a huge, like, like we mentioned in terms of like a mail database type thing, that if it's const- if you have the VM running constantly, uh, Time Machine effectively isn't backing that up. And I think I, you know, I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, there are workarounds. Uh, I have a VMware backup script that um, it's part of my super duper thing. Where this is actually I I did this in response to Jet- Jeff Atwood end up losing. I think his entire blog, and he had to like reconstruct it. His coding horror blog had to reconstruct it from like archive.org backups and uh, and other like you know, people have sent in like they saved down a, a blog post of his, and so he like crowdsourced to re- restore it all. And basically, what happened is that he had his entire blog not really backed up anywhere. Like I don't know if it was WordPress or whatever, but it was in a VM, and the VM when it was being backed up. He thought he had good backups, but it turns out that the backups were inconsistent because it was like a block copy backup and the VM was uh, in use. So when he actually tried to restore, it's like, oh, guess what? It's just all corrupted. So uh, I, use, realizing that this was a hole in my backup strategy because I have a bunch of live VMs, is that I have a backup script that I use in conjunction with SuperDuper that basically issues a, uh, a snapshot command for every running VM 
and yeah. before mm-hmm. the super duper fires. And so it's intelligent to figure out which VM is actually running. It tells us those to back up and creates a new snapshot called backup. And then, and then the super duper can proceed so that hopefully then you have consistent snapshot. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, the other follow up is from Matt Connolly, which is uh, he wrote this blog posting called "Using ZFS Snapshots on Time Machine Backups." So basically, he did well, what I what I've wanted to do, and he lists. There's a lot of thorny stuff there that uh, he he's taking the arrows in the back for us. Um, that he, there are some issues there that you wouldn't have expected, but the end end of it, the the pros of it is that. You, you get you detect bit rot. That's what ZFS gets you. And also, when Time Machine eats itself, it's just a matter of rolling back, which is a a a simple t- uh, Time Machine operation instead of the time crazy stuff that I'm piecing together myself with the clone drive and all that. And uh, it, it doesn't take a while to actually roll back a ZFS uh, snapshot that has a Time Machine. I think on the order of four hours, something like that. He mentioned, and uh, there are also some gotchas in terms of like. How it interacts with NetaTalk, which is the open source uh, AFP file serving software that basically everyone uses except for Apple, because Apple has a, you know, the original source. But um, yeah, so uh, we also link to that, and that does it for all the free file uh, the backup follow up. Uh, sure, um, uh, I would say that one of the reasons I do I did rag on CrashPlan was because it did seem to me like after I updated iTunes, it it had to re-upload all of my movie files. Oh, yeah, right, right. Which would be an argument against them having an effective way of updating a small portion of a file, Mm, unless somehow the metadata file was... Metadata for movie files is just somehow spread wide enough that that you have to copy the whole thing. But yeah, I I would have been very happy if, if they had not... Uh, shown a propensity to just keep uploading the same files all, over and over again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Good point. Okay. So, well, so what got me interested in talking about Unicode today mm-hmm. was a tweet from someone called Bavarius. Oh, Both yes. Have you yes. heard of this person? Oh, yes. yes. I've, been, a, yeah. I've been following him before he was popular, but he's not popular now. So that's how early I was. That's <laughs> so early. Woo. Um, <laughs> so, mysterious figure, um, assuming it's a he, but. Uh, but doesn't have you know a real name attached, um, and what is he? Objective C and Coco Diagnostics resident is one way that he describes himself. Um, so he has a tweet uh, from a while ago, I guess, where he says uh, some NS string operations in light of Idaka's the string type is broken post. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. that. Yeah. Um, so Idaka, Idaka is a is another Twitter user, E D A Q A. We'll put it in the show notes. And this is a user who has a, a weblog called Musing Mortore. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. The the Twitter feed says the name is Idaka Mortora E, which doesn't sound quite right. So I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a pronunciation or not. In any case, I'm going to keep calling it Musing Mortore. On programming and language design is the is the blog, which the post came from, um, and this is kind of an interesting person. Uh, he's working on a new language called Leaf, which is in the early stages of development, uh, and the whole blog seems to be about you know language level features and issues. So he's actually gone on about the string type twice. Um, he had another post from earlier in August called "We Don't Need a String Type." 
And he, I believe his latest post has a, 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 a couple of uh, tests for string classes. And he takes the word Noel mm-hmm. with, you know, a, two dots over the E. Uh, it's called a, a, a diaresis or, or umlaut if you're German. And he's got a, a bunch of tests for it, of that and a couple of other strings. I won't go through the whole thing, but I'll go through the first couple tests for Noel. Does it print correctly? Uh, what is the reverse of the string? Uh, what are the first three characters? And what is the length? And he says that quite a few string classes fail in the same way that you would fail if you were just operating on the characters themselves. So mm-hmm. uh, in the reverse, um, a lot of the string classes put the uh, diaresis over the L instead of over the E because mm-hmm. because it's it's it goes on the wrong uh, the wrong character. Most of them, when you say "give me the first three characters," uh, say N O E, an mm-hmm. E without the diaresis on it. And most of them, when you say "what's the length," the common answer is five. And he tried mm-hmm. this with C plus with C sharp, with Perl, with Python, and with JavaScript, possibly a few others. It's interesting that he didn't try it with Objective C. So that's actually what uh, Bavarius did. Mm-hmm. And you could see his tweet. He uh, begins to tweet and not a blog post. He, he crams together the information that he wants us to see by putting it in a picture, which is interesting, a picture of an Xcode window and a, and a, and a log. Yeah, um, that's so, what we're reduced to. <laughs> and a string is, is better than a lot of these other classes. Um, it reverses it properly. It gives you the first three characters properly. It gives you the length properly of four characters. Um, but there are very specific reasons for that, which we will get to as I get further into uh, the topic. Now, what again, what, um, what uh, Edako says is that because all these string classes fail, that we should just throw away all these string classes and just use arrays of characters because he doesn't want us making false promises by saying, yeah, it's a string class, it can do everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm all for stripping out unnecessary API complexity. Mm-hmm. But I think... Misread, misreading how strings work and, and the complexity of what we're dealing with with strings, which mostly comes down to the complexity of Unicode. But uh, so just, just to, again, a couple of reasons why I, I don't think it's, it's a valid point. Because even if any string did get it all wrong, um, it's still useful as a vessel. Because remember you talked last week about collaborating classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, any string is it's used all over the place inside Apple's APIs as a vessel for string information. And so that can be useful even if you don't actually do too much with the, the class itself. It's just a way to say, well, this is always what you can expect in there without having to specify anything more complicated than that. Because if you were passing around arrays all the time, then if you ever wanted to change that string reference to do something else, to be something else, to have other features in it, it would be very hard to do. And so in terms of being part of a collaboration, you really want to give yourself a lot of flexibility for that. And, and actually, and again, it doesn't really fail most of them. And again, Apple could add more functionality the next release to, to do more of these things correctly, even if it doesn't do them all correctly now. But, but again, a lot of the trouble comes down to, to Unicode's issues. So let's get into that. So the history of Unicode, uh, and I'm getting basically all of this from Wikipedia. So yes, most of this uh, entire episode is coming from Wikipedia. Uh, so. Well, this is the basic. I mean, I think we link to Wikipedia more than any other podcast in existence. <laughs> so, I mean, we we could basically replace ourselves with like text to speech version of Wikipedia yeah, yeah. and just call it a day. 
We took this automate ourselves away, yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so we'll put the Unicode link in there. And it, per- it started in 1987 with a couple of people um, wanting to, to set something up here. Uh, some of them from Apple. So that's interesting. And the idea was it represents uh, all writing, uh, but characters, not glyphs. So it's not a typesetting system. It's strictly for the characters. So if you want to translate that into something that's going to show up on screen and translate it into glyphs, you've got to do that yourself. And uh, the, the term code point, uh, I believe, can, is pretty much saying character. So we're going to go back and forth about some terminology in a little bit. But, but that's the thing to remember. Code point is, is character. Um, and I'm not quite sure. I, I didn't remember in, in reading it exactly where they came up with the name. I actually think the name is pretty cool um, when you come right down to it. You know, it's not just code, it's Unicode, right? <laughs> right? It could be a name of a programming language. Can you do that in a, in a Schwarzenegger accent, maybe? That'd be good. Uh, no. <laughs> so the, now the code points, the, the, the bits that you need to represent a character, uh, the original design was for a 16-bit yeah. code point. And that was based on the assumption that only the scripts and characters in modern use would need to be encoded. But somebody came up with the bright idea to say, no, 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 let's encode every language, or excuse me, every, every writing system in human history. <laughs> a bit of a scope increase there. Yeah, <laughs> scope creep, right? So, so they introduced a, a surrogate character mechanism in 1996, and we're going to go through that in glorious detail in a little bit. Um, I do remember when OS X came out that it was kind of a big deal that Unicode was baked in. Mm-hmm. Because before that, there was what, like Mac Roman, Mac yeah. something or other. There were a lot of other yeah. scripts, and they weren't standard. It's it's interesting again to think back through this as we've talked before that back when OS X originally came out, Apple was much more interested in standard technologies than they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually is kind of interesting to think: well, if the Apple of today came out with a brand new OS, of course they didn't. Even iOS was very much based on OS X, so of course mm-hmm. it uses Unicode as well. If they came out with iOS today, knowing that they're at the height of their powers, you know, I suppose they could have used a different uh, character encoding system, but that would actually be pretty, pretty hard because Unicode has pretty much taken over the world at this point. There really aren't any competitors to it, uh, and, and it's very complicated. So, so they probably still use Unicode today when you come right down to it. Um, so 16-bit characters... Um, but in fact, now, because they expanded it, um, it actually takes up, if my math is correct, uh, to do a full representation of, of any character in Unicode would take 21 bits. Hmm. Not 30 bits, but 21 bits. And so what happens is uh, those 21 bits, the, the values that could be in those 21 bits, are divided into planes. And uh, each plane takes up 16 bits, so that original character size of, of, of Unicode, roughly 65,000 code points. Uh-huh. And there are 17 planes. And so that's interesting, right? So if there were, if there were 16 planes, <laughs> then it would you know, be an even 20 bits and you'd be all set. And so I don't know why they said, no, 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 not, you know, because you know, these were computer people who made it up. Why didn't they just say, you know, 16? It's not like they're using them all, as we'll get to. So I'm not quite sure why they did that, but there are 17 planes, so there are 21 bits to, to take up all of the space. Now, you might say, well, why not just take up all 32 bits of, of 
what would normally be, you know, how you would carry around these values. And we'll get to that too. There's a specific reason why it can't be more than 21 bits. So it's divided up into, into planes, and 17 planes. The very first one, the one at index zero, which is uh, in hex, you know, 00002FFFF. And I'm going to be doing that a lot. I'm going to talk in hexadecimal and talking in, in uh, binary. So, Ooh, talk, s- talk hexy to me. <laughs> oh, God. Well, do you do this to me all the time? Come on. I do. I do. That's right. You should, you should get back at me at least a little bit. So the, the zero plane is called the basic multilingual plane. And it uh, contains characters for almost all modern languages. And I'm, I'm actually funny. It, it's funny, like, that phrase, almost all modern languages, like, what modern languages doesn't it include? Uh, Wikipedia was not forthcoming about that. Mm. Um, and then a, a bunch of other specialty characters, too. Um, so they say, and I believe I copied this verbatim from Wikipedia, primary objective of the basic multilingual plane was to support the unification of all prior character sets as well as all characters for writing. So every way that people write stuff nowadays is in there. And when you consider that, um, like, Latin takes up, you know, uh, what, 256 characters in that? Maybe maybe 512, you know, maybe even 1,000 out of 65,000. That leaves a lot of characters left. So most of them are actually taken up by Chinese, uh, Japanese, and Korean characters and not, not uh, uh, European characters at all. And so if you look at the Wikipedia page about this, this uh, plane, it's got a little graph of all of them, a little, uh, yeah, a little graph, and, and most of it's filled in. There are a few spots here and there that aren't filled in, but, but mostly it's, it's completely filled in. So then you get to, there's only a couple more, and so there's plane one at index one. is called the supplementary multilingual plane. And it contains things like Egyptian hieroglyphs mm-hmm. and cuneiform scripts, I actually, uh, I meant to try this out actually before I came along. Like, like what do we have? Do we even have uh, fonts in OS X that will display Egyptian hieroglyphs? So as you were speaking, I've been going th- using Unicode checking, <laughs> a, a Unicode checker to, to walk yeah. through this. And unfortunately, all, most of these things are boxes to me. Yeah. So, yeah, because I guess I don't have hieroglyph- hieroglyphic fonts. I would, so... Yeah, I'd be interested. Like, is there a, is there a font out there? I bet there is that you can you know, either pay for or whatever that says, "Okay, here we're going to show you all these Egyptian hieroglyphs." And so, so that's at one zero 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 to one FFFF, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the the graph for that plane in Wikipedia, it's mostly not filled in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a huge amount of space in there for future characters. And then, so plane two and index two is a supplementary ideographic plane. And I don't even know what's in there. Like, they didn't even show a graph for it. Again, that's, that's mostly empty, I would assume. And then planes uh, at index 3 through index 14 are completely empty. Yeah. Wide open. Yeah. I guess they're future-proofing, right? So ah. that, but that means then that, that planes at, at index 15 and 16, but planes 16 and 17, do have some stuff in them. Mm-hmm. So again, it's really kind of interesting. You know, why shove stuff way down at the end of it? And not in the middle. Well, actually, so there's one particular reason why there's something in, in uh, plane index at index 15, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, 15, it's 15 years or 14. Actually, no, it's uh, D, it's 13. Anyway, we'll get to it. Um, but, uh, but again, it's very interesting. So, you know, you know what, what I said earlier was, well, why not use all 32 bits? Well, one reason not to use all 32 bits of, of what would be the, the vessel for that value is... Shh, they don't even need the 21 bits that they got. 
Uh-huh. They've got all kinds of space in there. So, you know, you have to invent a lot more languages or discover a lot more languages to even fill these up. Uh, considering that what all the Chinese characters in the world already fit in, you know, the first one. Uh-huh. So, so there you go. Um, and when we're talking about planes, uh, I, I don't know about you, but for me, when they talked about planes a lot, it made me think of Dungeons and Dragons, right? You know, the astral plane, the prime material plane. And apparently I'm not the only one. One thing, one little note in the Wikipedia entry was that all the planes above that first one, the basic multilingual plane, are informally known as the astral planes. So, yeah. So it says that the, the people who invented this or you used this are still geeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, as am I. So, you know, there you go. Not, not throwing stones, but just I just thought that was funny. Okay. So that's, you know, give you a quick whirlwind tour of how that works um, or how Wikipedia thinks that works. But... Okay, so we've got, you know, if, if you have as many bits as you would want to represent any one character, you need 21 bits for it. And so if you wanted, you could say, well, your, each of your characters is, is 32 bits, like in, in, a, in, you know, in, a, in a language, in a, in a database or file format, whatever. And you could say, you know, UTF-32, right? Because there are actually three common, actually one of them not common, but three ways that we're going to talk about today of, of representing these characters. UTF-8, uh-huh. where um, uh, each character is, is represented uh, by one byte, one or more bytes, but one byte is, is the default. UTF-16, where each uh, character is, is, is two bytes. And then, you know, again, since it's the simplest and nobody uses it, we're going to start with UTF-32. Uh-huh. Because what that means is, since there are only 20 bits, you can just throw them all in there, and then one character is four bytes, and they're always four bytes, and that's it. And nobody uses this because, as we said, um, all modern languages can fit in the first 16 bits. So for you reserving four bytes for your character means, you know, for almost any programming task you have today, you're wasting two bytes for each character. So even though you could, if you did it, then you'd have no exceptions and every character would fit in, in four bytes. Nobody does that. So throw that back. Actually, I, I don't even think, you know, when people mention UTF uh, variants, they almost generally don't even mention UTF-32. I'm not sure anyone is using it at all. But so the next smaller one, which is UTF-16, is used quite a bit. Uh, and I believe um, Apple uses it as its internal representation for an string. Uh, lots of other places use it. Um, there's actually a modified UTF-16, which is a little weird, and I'm not going to go into it, but uh, some places, I believe Java actually uses some sort of modified UTF-16 for, for their uh, for their strings. But in any case, I'm going to stick with the standard ones. And so what happens here is if you're in that basic multilingual plane, then you're, then you're good. Then your character value fits in 16 bits. And so your character is 16 bits, two bytes, and you're done. So, so like most languages, you know, English, even Chinese, uh, every character will be two bytes and, and you'll be done and you'll be all set. But what about when you, when you hit one of these characters, uh, like cuneiform or, or, or hieroglyphs, that is more than that. What happens then is that they split up the character into two surrogates. They call them leading surrogates and a leading surrogate and a trailing surrogate. And each of those surrogates is uh, two bytes. And so what they need, what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to say, well, uh, 
differentiate between you know a standalone character and these two surrogates. And the way they do that is they give you a, a particular mask, uh, a bit mask for um, mask is the wrong thing, but there's a particular pattern that's going to be set for a particular set of bits if you're a greeting surrogate. And that is, uh, uh, what is it, D800? And a particular pattern that's set for a particular set of bits for a trailing surrogate, and that's uh, DC00. Mm-hmm. And if you if you do it in binary, um, <laughs> let's see if it makes sense for me to say this. 110110 <laughs> followed by 10 zeros. And that's the leading one. And then the, the trailing one is 110111 followed by 10 zeros. Uh, that's the, the the way that works. I just um, want to say, for the record, it cracks me up when you read binary. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. What it is. Well, it's important because what happens then is they take what would be the full character value, which is 21 bits, and they manipulate it in a certain way that I think actually would be too hard, to, a little hard to describe. Um, and they manip- manipulate it in a certain way such that you only need 20 bits to hold that value. Again. Mm. And then because it's 20 bits, they can then, you know, f- spread that out and take the first 10. And remember I said that there were, the, you know, 10 zeros? Uh, 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 below the the, uh, the the reading mask. Well, they just slot those ten bits in underneath that, so you know it's one one zero one one zero, and then the remaining bits of that first part, and then one one zero one one one, and then the remaining bits of the the trailing the the, the second excuse me the lower ten bits, and and that's your those are your two characters. That's you know your your reading surrogate and your trailing surrogate. And does that make sense? Again, I'm trying to explain something that's probably better explained visually over a podcast, but, uh, but Wolf. Oh, did, yeah. yeah, I actually, uh, like I knew about these concepts kind of generally, okay. yeah. but I haven't, uh, I think you did a really good job of explaining it without the neat, without the visual format <laughs> considering. Yeah. It's, it's one of these things where like even C code might be easier to understand. Yeah. So it's a hard thing to describe over the air, but it's a bit hard. And, and you know, what's important, right. Is that they take, the bits, and they just split them. Yeah. They split them over two characters. And so if you were trying to read this, um, you know, the, the, like the actual values would make very little sense to you. Uh, you'd have to do quite a bit of, of bit uh, splitting, maybe you call it, uh, bit manipulation to, to, to pack things back in to make the, you know, the, the real character that you would then, uh, the, the original uh, representation of the character. But what, the way it, the reason it works, right, is because those you know D eight zero zero and D C zero zero are all set to you know zeros. That pattern, you know, those bits are not set to anything um, if it's not a surrogate. So there, you, it's distinct, distinct different sets of values for a standalone character versus a, a leading surrogate versus a trailing surrogate. And this is one thing that that Unicode. Um, I, if I can give it a personality, prides itself on, right? It's saying that for any character, you don't, you can figure out where you are in a stream of characters of Unicode characters by looking at the values, by looking at the particular you know values of certain bits in it, and so you can say, well, yes, I'm, I'm looking at you know a hundred characters, and I'm right in the middle, and I can immediately tell, okay, this is a standalone character, this is a standalone character, this is a trailing surrogate. This is a leading surrogate. Uh-huh. So you, you don't have to uh, remember you know, the character boundaries ahead of time. Now, that only works to the character boundary. If you have a particular one byte in there and you don't know where the bytes start, 
actually, I mean, you don't know where the character boundaries are. You don't, you know, you don't know whether, um, you know, bite uh, 100 is the start of a character or bite 101 is the start of a character. Then you're screwed. Mm. But, but that's the way it is. So that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. Um, so then, <laughs> then we get to UTF-8. And UTF-8 says, the, you know, the, the unit that you're working with is instead of two bytes is one byte. And uh, in the same way that if a character, a Unicode character was, you know, less, less than or eight, well, less than two bytes, uh, two bytes, if it could fit in two bytes, then it was a standalone character and you didn't have to have a waiting trailing surrogate. In Unicode, in, in UTF-8, if your value is um, one byte, well, go to less than one, uh, seven bits, then you can fit it directly in one byte. And that's a standalone character. And of course, that's ASCII. Right. And I think most people know this right now. At this point, right? That ASCII and, and uh, Unicode are... Unicode is a superset of ASCII. Mm-hmm. But the way this works with UTF-8 is, therefore... Now, I think with ASCII, that, that upper... That high bit... Yeah. It's actually, like, uh, uh, like invalid. Like, like it's not... Sp- you're not supposed to look at that value with, right, with right. pure ASCII. Right, because it yeah. was also could be used as a parity bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with Unicode, that's not true. With Unicode, it has to be zero. And the reason it has to be zero is uh, you can look at that, you know, that stream of UTF-8 bytes and say, well, if the high bit is zero, then it's this one character, one byte character, and you're all set. But if the high bit is set, then it's, it's something else. And, and how they do that is also interesting. And again, I didn't know the details of this before I looked, up, looked at Wikipedia for this one. Um, so if the, if the high bit is set, then it's something else. And what it is... Um, depends on the, the rest of the bits. And so actually the, the high bit and the second highest bit are always used in some way. So if you've got a multi-byte UTF-8 character, you will only ever have at most six bits of actual space in any one byte uh-huh. to do anything with. And if it's one zero, if the high bit is one and the second highest bit is zero, then it's a continuation byte. And again, there can be up to six of them, I think. Um, and what's interesting is that they don't have bits to tell you which continuation byte you are. Mm. Uh, they just say, Hey, there's a continuation byte. You have to keep going back one until you stop hitting a byte with one zero and hit a byte with one something else to find the, 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 the reading byte to figure out what the heck's going on. And it's interesting, right? You might've thought, well, no, I want to know which continuation byte I'm in right now. But, you know, there's only eight bits you got to work with in these, right. these uh, one-byte characters. So you really want to – they optimized it for extra space over a little bit of extra uh, uh, algorithm time. In that first byte of your UTF-8 multi-byte character, you actually have as many bits set going from the top down as there are continuation bytes, mm, okay. followed by a zero. Okay, so they're basically encoding the length in that first byte. In that, in the, in the bits going from right, the, right, yeah, right, right. You're right, right. Bits the, going on the down. masked byte. Yeah. So if you've got six characters, then you know you get six. I don't even know if that's possible. Well, let's say four, four characters. Then there's four bits from top down taken. Then zero. You only got three bits left there. But so you've got three bits left there, and then you've got six bits in each of those four additional characters. Now I don't. I can't do the math in my head. Um, well, let's say you've got a character in the multi, basic multilingual plane, but it's all the way near the top. So it's FFFF. Now, FFFF is actually not a valid character, um, but 
let's just say it is, and so that's 16 bits. And so they actually do the same thing that you would have done in the uh, UTF-16, except spread it over more characters. You take those bits and you just slap them on in to all of your, your bytes, uh, as many bytes as you need to make it fit. Mm. So 16 would be, you know, you get 6 and 6 and 6 is uh, 18, right? Mm-hmm. So um, actually, actually, you do need, what did I just say? You need 16 bits. And yeah. um, so you actually, you know, you fit the lowest 6 in the last continuation byte, the, the next lowest 6 in the second to last, the next lowest six in the in the third to last, um, and then you you know you 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 fill in the rest with zeros. So your actual high bit, you know, your you actually mean your your leading byte would just be the number of bits in it, followed by zero, and then rest zeros because you, you fill in as many bytes as you need. And if and if that doesn't quite match a boundary, then you just fill the rest of them with zeros. Okay. Um, and so the same thing. Let's say you had a um, you know, a 13 bit value. Um, then you take up two continuation bits and you take up one bit from the initial, from the initial byte. So again, you just all spread it all out through however many bytes you need and you're all done. Okay. Uh, and one thing that they, that I did see again in the Wikipedia article was that, um, apparently Unicode, uh, was superior to other encoding, uh, algorithms because it only needed bitwise operations. It didn't need multiplication. Hmm. So that's another okay. thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just to get back to, you know, that original idea here that, you know, hey, you just need an array of characters. You don't need a, a string character, a string uh, class. You know, oh my God, can you imagine trying to deal with this yourself? Right. right. No, I want I want I want Apple to do it. I want somebody's APIs to deal with it. Uh, a couple other things here. Let's see if I can fit them all in. Uh, one is if you have a two byte character, then suddenly you've got yourselves into the issues of endianness on your mm-hmm. platform because you might have a, a big endian or a little endian platform. So they have this idea of a byte order mark mm-hmm. or bomb. And the byte order mark is F-E-F-F. That's the character. Now, that's not a valid character. Remember I said that F-F-F-F was not a valid character. F-E-F-F is also not a valid character. And so you put that non-valid character at the beginning of it, and, you know, then if it's F-F, excuse me, F-E-F-F, then it's big endian because the the, uh, high order byte is first. And if it's F-F-F-E, then it's little endian. And you can tell and you can do everything you need to do with a serialized UTF-16 out there. And but the interesting thing there is that then that also lets you know that it's UTF sixteen, right? Um, and I seem to remember seeing a lot more of this years ago. I don't see so much of it now, and I think some of that is because there are fewer programs, fewer data formats anymore, which try anything other than Unicode. So you mm. don't need to spend a lot of time figuring. Oh, is this Unicode? Is this something else? Is this something else? So I don't see very much of this anymore. Myself now that might just be I'm, I'm doing different things these days. Oh, but, I thought it was because like UTF eight kind of won. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's quite possibly it. Now, of course, UTF eight doesn't need a bomb, mm-hmm. 
But but it has one. But it has one, right? Uh, I don't still. Maybe you can explain this to me. I don't know why. Uh, well, first of all, so it's EF BB BF. If I copied that down right, and yeah, it's really just there to say this is UTF eight. Okay. And so it's like uh, basically a magic cookie. It's a magic cookie. Now, <laughs> the Wikipedia article about this says that the standard does not recommend it. Okay. Um, Fair enough. And they actually have a couple of reasons why they say, you know, this is not this is not good. This is not um some this is not future this is not a good future proofing strategy. Um I know I used to see this a lot. I used to see this in front of a lot of different uh, uh files that I would get or that I would see applications create. And I, again I don't see much of it anymore. But yeah, it's not it's not really for any other reason than to just identify it as UTF eight. So that's that's interesting. Uh, and then the last thing is talking about diacritic marks. And here's where we really come back to some of those earliest uh, uh, tests that I was talking about. Because, you know, we have all this complexity so far about exactly how we're going to encode everything. And, and maybe you need two characters to, or two code points. I don't even know what to call them. Two thingies to represent one character, right? So characters might be multiple bytes instead of just one one byte or multiple units instead of just one unit. Well, it's worse because when you have things like diacritic marks, Unicode actually encourages, it actually says that the default is to have like an E character and then the diacritic character after it, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's see. So there's the E character, lowercase e is, is 65, and then, uh, which is, a, a, which is again, a, what do you call it? A hexadecimal. And then the, the acute character, accent character, is 301, again, a hexadecimal. So you need to pair those two things together to make uh, an E with an accent over it, with an E with an acute accent. Now, there is also a Unicode character, which is the E with the accent already on it, which is one character, which is E9. But Unicode says, don't do that. It says uh, precomposed characters. Uh, precomposed is, is when it's all one character. And what's the other one? Decomposed is when it's two characters. They say that the precomposed characters are a legacy solution, primarily there to help computer systems with an incomplete Unicode implementation. Mm. They really want you to use two. Like, why? Why do you want me to use two? There's the one right there. It's just one character. Mm -hmm. Isn't that easier? Nope. Mm -hmm. And especially because like UTF-32 does that mean they still want the decomposed even yep. even though you have all those bits? Eight eight bytes, yeah. to represent you know e with a with an accent on it. Um, and so I think you know we talked about earlier with those tests. That's what was going on because regardless of what implementation they used, UTF eight, UTF sixteen, if your uh, uh, diaresis was represented after the character, and you have a naive implementation of get me the first few characters, it will get you the E. That's almost certainly what was happening. And then sure. if you say a naive implementation of um, how many characters are there, again, they'll just say, well, five, when it's really just four. Now, why did NSString do better than that? Um, to answer that, there is a tech note, uh, technical Q&A, QA 1235, converting to precomposed Unicode. And there's a couple of different interesting bits in here. They say... HFS Plus converts all file names to decomposed Unicode, mm-hmm. while Macintosh keyboards generally produce precomposed Unicode. So what was happening, I believe, with Bavarius's test is the reason 
Um, the reason uh, Anna String said that Noel was for only four characters was because he typed it to put it into his uh, his, his code file. Mm. And by typing it, he used the precomposed version, which which then completely, you know, got you out of the way of all those problems. When you reverse those characters, of course, if it's just one character, then you know you have no problems. If it's just one character, then of course it's only going to be four. So he didn't really fix it. I bet if he did it with, with a, a string that was deliberately set up to have decomposed Unicode, he might have had mm-hmm. the same problems. Mm, interesting. Um, but for me, that's just... And, and also, like, HFS Plus, I remember this. I remember this when they first started using Unicode for file names. It was kind of a big deal because then if you compared... You know, if you wanted to say, well, does this string match this file name? And you were using a naive implementation of, of string comparison, then, you know, the strings might say they don't match even when they really do, right? So there was a big deal about, okay, you got to decompose your string before you do string comparisons with HFS plus file names. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. This is, um, was this the entire, uh, Drew Thaler wrote a blog post on it? Oh, God, no, I don't remember anything like that. Oh, okay, just, okay. I mean, if you can find that, that'd be great. It's a bunch I just of years ago. Googled now. it and found it. The case against insensitivity. Okay. So apparently, yeah, uh, I'll throw a link in here. But okay. it's, it's a different topic. And his him. his basic thrust is that case insensitivity is a bad idea in file systems. And I know that. <laughs> and his and I I I'll put words in his mouth, but I believe he also mentioned that uh, he doesn't think Unicode should be at the file system level. He thinks it's a layering violation type stuff. And uh, furthermore, I uh, I believe that this entire HFS plus being storing names as decomposed Unicode, I believe that's actually also tripped up Git. Do you, yeah. do you remember this? No, no, I don't, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, I, yeah. I know that Kevin Ballard was arguing with Linus over this. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so if you if you want to wake the beast, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll let you decide who was the beast there. <laughs> but yes, Kevin Ballard's famous for for arguing a lot about Git online, so we, we make fun of him. That's true. But we That's love true. him. Yes, yes. No, he's a, he's a co-worker. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> he railed you apparently on two topics. So no, That's fine. I'm pretty much done. Um, so, uh, but, you know, for me, this just tells me, you know, pretty much the opposite of what this, uh, you know, Mortore was saying, Edaka, that, you know, I don't want to use arrays of characters. I want to have string APIs that don't even refer to characters, you know, Mm -hmm. that do everything that I want to do uh, in a way that just refers to arrays of characters or or something that don't ever take me down to the level of individual indexes of characters. Do that as, as, as seldom as you possibly can because, you know, given Unicode, that way lies madness. So... So I really, you know, I really want another paradigm other than uh, a stream of characters, uh, an arrays of characters, because that really doesn't seem to be the future for me, given all of the craziness that we've just talked about. Um, but yeah, so I found it, uh, all this stuff pretty interesting, and I hope you do as well. So uh, anything else? I will. I want to get this on record that uh, sure. when I go- when I Google. Um, what did I Google here? It was Kevin Ballard get Unicode. I my the first. <laughs> The first hit is Linus re- 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 replying to him with all uppercase, no, I do not. Damn it, stop this idiocy. So there you go. From the mouth of babes. That's, that's as good a way to end the podcast as any. <laughs> stop this idiocy. Yeah, yeah. We'll see you next time. <laughs>